Jesus, far from avoiding any sort of confrontation, escalates the confrontation. That's important to see. He won't even allow the disciples to answer. He answers for them. And in the passages that follow, not only do the religious leaders get bolder and bolder and bolder with their criticism of Jesus, but Jesus gets bolder and bolder and bolder in confronting them about their legalism and exposing them for all to see. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, I want you to take your Bibles and be turning with me to Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2. And we want to continue our walk through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22. The title of the message is Weddings, Wardrobes, and Wine. When you find your place there, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. And allow me to begin reading in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and Then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh 
wineskins. Please be seated as we bow for prayer. Father, again, we're grateful for the clarity of Your Word. We're thankful for the words of Christ. Lord, even in His parables, even in His illustrations, He speaks with such power and such clarity. Lord, we pray that You might grant us wisdom by Your Holy Spirit as we study this passage. Give us insight into our own hearts. Give us insight into the very dangerous trajectory of legalism. We pray that Christ would be our greatest treasure and that our hope and our faith would be in Him and in Him alone, not in ourselves, not in our works, not in our righteousness. It's to His righteousness that we are clothed and it's to His righteousness we cling. Remind us of this this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Andre, would you like me to try it one more time or not? No? Okay, he's, he's saying I've had enough of that. If you recall, we entered chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago in verse 1 where Jesus healed the paralytic. And that was really the beginning of what we began to see, which was a confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. That account reveals to us that rather than having compassion and for the paralytic and being grateful to the Lord that Jesus would heal him and forgive him of his sins... We see the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees sitting there watching this whole thing, internally questioning Jesus' right to forgive sins. In chapter 2 and verse 7, they said to themselves inwardly, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, Jesus could have let that that, uh, confrontation remain. In other words, Jesus could have allowed that criticism to remain between their ears, in their hearts and in their minds, but instead Jesus exposed what they were thinking, didn't He? And in verse 8 it says, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? And then, in a demonstration of power, Jesus proved His ability to forgive sins, demonstrated by raising this man up from his paralysis. And this man walked away whole. An amazing miracle. This internal questioning evolved, as we're going to see, in open interrogation of Jesus. The religious leaders get bolder and bolder and bolder. We saw last time in verse 16 that the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors after Jesus had called Matthew as a disciple, they said to him, or to the disciples, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard what the question was posed to the disciples, and He didn't let the disciples answer it. He said, let me answer that. And He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. That was a watershed statement by Jesus. I am the great physician. I have come to raise sinners from the dead. It is only appropriate that I eat with sinners. I didn't come to have dinner with you Pharisees. 
Because I didn't come to call those who think they're righteous. I came to call those who know they are sinners. Jesus, far from avoiding any sort of confrontation, escalates the confrontation. That's important to see. He won't even allow the disciples to answer. He answers for them. And in the passages that follow, not only do the religious leaders get bolder and bolder and bolder with their criticism of Jesus, but Jesus gets bolder and bolder and bolder in confronting them about their legalism and exposing them for all to see. In our present passage, verses 18 through 22, Jesus roundly condemns the legalism of the scribes and Pharisees by answering a question posed to him regarding fasting. This will lead to another confrontation in verses 23 through 28 that concerns their legalism regarding Sabbath observance. Finally, this hostility will erupt into full-blown plots against Jesus' life, complete with false accusation. But at the present, the question has to do with the Jewish practice of fasting. In the previous account, they criticized Jesus for feasting with tax collectors, but here they're criticizing Him for not requiring His disciples to fast. In the previous account, it was about feasting. In this account, it is about fasting. Jesus cannot win with these religious leaders. And at the heart of their question regarding fasting is really a bigger question related to the fact that they are challenging His right to graciously forgive sinners. What right does Jesus have to forgive sins apart from requiring religious works? That's the issue. Jesus had very little time to entertain the trifles of precision and religious duties. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a very helpful reminder to us that an unbalanced tediousness in following religious traditions, mark it, will always result in failing to see and trust in the grace of God for salvation. The true gospel cannot remain pure with the admixture of religion. Good works and the gospel do not go together. They do not match. They do not mix. They are like oil and water. The Bible is explicitly clear about this. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles were clear, weren't they? There is salvation and no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul was clear in 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through Me. You either have Jesus or you don't have Jesus. You either come to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or you will be damned in your sins regardless of how righteous, religious, and spiritual you may be. The external religion of the Pharisees was no match for the internal transformation of the Gospel. But the religious leaders refused to love and embrace Jesus. And their refusal was a resistance to God's love. A refusal to humbly accept the grace and the mercy of God that only comes through the Gospel. The scribes and Pharisees were marked by superficial faith and religious fanaticism. That's it. They were not unlike many religious people today. 
trying to earn favor with God through rites, rituals, ceremonies, and even Bible-sanctioned spiritual disciplines like fasting. Because the danger of apostasy and misplaced zeal always lurks among the visible church. Let me remind you of a verse, or two verses. Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I bear witness that they, that is the Jews, have a zeal for God, but Paul says it's not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That is always what marks religion. Man manufactured devotion to God apart from Christ is useless. Obedience to God's law apart from faith in Jesus Christ is useless. Jesus would say in Matthew 7 that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out many demons? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? And Jesus would say to them, depart from me, I never knew you workers of lawlessness. The questioning of Jesus' radical departure from religious fasting, therefore, is in the Bible to help us understand the amazing grace of God. It is no accident that this account, this question about fasting, comes after Jesus forgave the paralytic for his sins when he didn't even confess his sins. The amazing grace of God. It comes after Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, who, like the paralytic, was paralyzed at his tax booth until Jesus said, follow me. The sovereignty of God. The grace of God. Matthew left that tax table to then have table fellowship with Jesus. All three of the synoptic Gospels place this questioning of Jesus' practice or lack thereof of fasting after these events of Jesus forgiving sinners and great sinners like Matthew the tax collector. All of it to communicate that the real problem of the religious elite was a rejection of God's grace. It had nothing to do with fasting. It was a rejection of God's grace. At its core, every false religion and every cult adheres to some form of work salvation. It's true in Jesus' day. It's true in our day. They exchanged, the Pharisees did, God's grace for a life of zeal for God that not only did not result in salvation, but actually expedited their condemnation. And such serves as a warning to any and all who participate in any religion of whatever variety. Jesus is the only way of salvation, and any attempt, no matter how sincere, to earn favor with God through good works only results in one destination, and that is the eternal lake of fire. Jesus would become more and more clear about that as his confrontation with religious leaders grew. But as we look at these verses, we really find two primary headings to govern our study. What we see in verses 18 through 22 are the religious leaders, along with, it may surprise you, John's disciples or some of John's disciples, questioning Jesus regarding his lack of training his disciples to fast like they fasted. Jesus answers their question by providing three illustrations or three parables and thus exposes their legalism. So just two main headings this morning. First, we will look at the inquisition in verse 18. And then secondly, we will look at the illustrations in verses 19 through 22. Notice with me, first of all, the inquisition. 
and verse 18. The conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders opens up by Mark telling us that now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. That is a a, uh, notation by Mark to indicate the fact that there is some sort of connection between John's disciples of all people with the Pharisees. Both groups were enamored with fasting. That raises a question, why were these two groups fraternizing together? Why were these two groups seen together? Because it was John the Baptist, the leader of John's disciples, who after all said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. So why would John's disciples be associating with the Pharisees who fasted with the express purpose of earning their salvation? Were they rejecting their teacher's theology? You remember that John himself said, you bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent been sent before him. They should have known better. Jesus said of John that he bore witness concerning the truth. John was the herald of the Messiah. Well, it is possible that John's disciples were fasting not because they were in agreement with the Pharisees, but because their leader had been imprisoned. In fact, we don't know exactly the timetable, but John the Baptist is at least in prison, and perhaps he's even been executed at this point. His execution took place somewhere around the beginning of the year A.D. 29. And so if he was in prison, or if he had already been executed, then perhaps John's disciples are fasting over their mourning of John's death or imprisonment. It is also possible that their leader now gone, they are beleaguered and they're failing to understand the full import of Jesus's identity and they have been so influenced by the Pharisees because after all their leader John was somewhat of a strange figure, he lived somewhat of an aesthetic lifestyle and John uh, had at least something in common with the Pharisees in the sense that John's disciples could identify with their religious zeal for self-denial. They had undergone, after all, a baptism of repentance, and maybe through their fasting they were trying to prove that they had really repented of their sins. We don't really know what the connection is. It could have been that this particular group of John's disciples were the same ones who were jealous because Jesus and His disciples, although Jesus was not baptizing anyone, Jesus' disciples were baptizing more converts than John's disciples. We read about that in John chapter 3. Also know that even after the resurrection, some three decades later in Acts chapter 19, that there were some of John's disciples that didn't even know who the Holy Spirit was. So there are all sorts of groups of John's disciples, some more orthodox than others, some embraced Christ better than others, and apparently some rejected Christ, and some perhaps even began to follow the works-oriented theology of the Pharisees. This group clearly probably thought it was ridiculous that Jesus would not require His disciples to fast because they would have viewed that as inconsiderate given their leader had been arrested. This was no time to celebrate with sinners like Matthew and other prostitutes and tax collectors. This was a time to mourn. I think that's why Mark associates them together. Their questioning is not sincere. There is an undercurrent market of resentment toward Jesus. 
The fact that they are associating with the Pharisees proves that they have a legalistic bent. So when verse 18 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, it's a notation to remind us that they are in cahoots together in some sense. And then verse 18 goes on to say, And people came and said to him, that is Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It's probably not the best translation because when it says people came and questioned Jesus about fasting, that sort of suggests this was a second group of people, but I don't think it was. According to Matthew's account, it was the same group of John's disciples that posed this question. And really their question is revealing a competitive spirit. Jesus and his disciples, from their vantage point, were in last place in the spiritual league standings. They were in last place behind John's disciples and the Pharisees because they were not keeping up with the the religious rigorousness of fasting. They weren't doing it. This is spiritual competition. We know from the New Testament that spiritual competition is something the Apostle Paul addressed with the Galatians. He admonished them not to bite and devour one another. They had an influx of Judaizers, false teachers that were saying you need to be circumcised, you need to fast, you need to observe this day and that day. And all of that was being brought to the forefront as a test case of who was truly spiritual and not spiritual. And what that resulted in was a congregation that bit and devoured one another because they were competing with one another as who was more religious than the next. Greatest impetus for spiritual competition is legalism. That's exactly what is happening here between the Pharisees, this group of John's disciples. They're comparing themselves with Jesus and his disciples, and they're saying, you're not adding up, you're not matching what we are doing. This question is rooted in legalism and spiritual competition. But what we need to see is that nothing is better than grace. Grace always wins out. Jesus was in no competition because, quite honestly, he didn't have an opponent worth fighting. Even legalism, with all of its zeal, was nothing compared to the grace of God through Christ. Jesus isn't concerned about this. But even the focus of John's disciples was on works and obedience instead of grace and mercy. Their inquisitiveness about fasting was not a sincere question, but a sinister accusation. Less is known about John's disciples' practice of fasting. What we know of them is gleaned from Josephus and not the New Testament, but we know quite a bit about the Pharisees. They loved to speak about fasting. Let me tell you just a little bit about the Pharisees. The whole sect of Phariseeism began during the Maccabean Revolt in the year 168 B.C. So that by Jesus' day, they had been around for some 200 years. Their name, Pharisees, means separated ones or holy ones. That's what they prided themselves in. They were a group that started off well because they opposed the Hellenism of the day. That was a movement among the Jews that promoted a compromise with Greco-Roman ways. And it was the Pharisees that said, we will not compromise the Torah, that is the law of God. They were a spiritual group of people, unlike the Sadducees, who were a political party of compromisers. They were the ones zealous for the law of God. And they were largely composed of lay people. They numbered about 6,000 in the first century, according to Josephus, which was actually a very small number. It was about 1% of the population. 
They surpassed the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots, and even the Essenes as the various Jewish sects in terms of influence over Jews. It was the Pharisees that were lauded as the most holy and the most influential, the leaders of the day. And in fact, the only group stricter than the Pharisees were the Essenes, but they were sort of a bizarre group, cult-like group that were left to themselves, and therefore they had very little influence upon society. The Pharisees proudly sat on Moses' seat. We could, see, we could say ex-cathedra as the authoritative successors and interpreters of God's law. They were so radical and so influential that after the Jewish war with Rome and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, it was the Pharisees single-handedly who helped perpetuate seceding generations of Judaism, or Judaism wouldn't even be around today. That's how influential they were. And the legacy of the Pharisees was rooted in a phrase that's found in Mark 7, 5 and other places of Scripture, and that phrase is the tradition of the elders. Everything was governed by the tradition of the elders. And so they maintained strict adherence to God's law, and they were so staunch in this that they created a tradition of the elders a bunch of rules and regulations in an attempt to protect the law of God found in Scripture. Jesus actually stood closer to the Pharisees than any other group in Judaism because Jesus, too, was conservative. But Jesus chided them for their glaring legalism. In fact, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 7, we see this really in verses 1 through 23, Jesus chides the religious leaders, but in principle we see what was at the heart of their error. In verse 5, the Pharisees' scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There's a principle of importance They honor me with their lips. They have all these laws. They talk about how they love the law of God written in Scripture. And they have all these other laws according to the tradition of the elders which talk about how they love and elevate the law of God. But in their heart, they don't honor me. And in fact, verse 7, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There it is right there. They teach as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, they place tradition over Scripture and say... This is what you need to do, and this is how you need to live. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So in actuality, in all your love for the law of God and creating rules and regulations like a fence around the law of God so that you don't fall away from the law of God, you actually have fallen into the trap of disregarding the law of God altogether because you've missed the whole point of it. You don't love your neighbor as yourself. You don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your heart is not in it. It's all about actions. It's all about the external. It has nothing to do with the internal. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. In verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. A fine way of rejecting it. Because in all the sophisticated, the refinery of all of your laws and all of your knowledge, it looks so good, you suck people in, but in reality, you've rejected the law of God. That is an amazing indictment. And so while Jesus would have more in common 
with the Pharisees than any other group. He absolutely could not associate with them. He'd rather associate with tax collectors and sinners than these guys because those people were closer to the kingdom. They recognized they were sinners. The scribes and Pharisees were self-righteous. And the result of all their rules and regulations created a crushing burden on their followers, complete with an intolerance for those who couldn't keep them. But Jesus' teaching... Jesus' teaching was fresh, theological, grace-filled. That of the Pharisees was harsh, moralistic, and law-obsessed. They were not teaching the truth, but their own opinions. They were not saving people, but damning people. They were not true teachers of Scripture. They were false teachers. They paraded a false religion in Judaism, and they rejected the Messiah. The Jews possessed three pillars of piety. Fasting was one of them. Fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. But it might interest you to know if you study the Old Testament, you will find that God certainly requires fasting, but He only requires one fast once a year under the Old Covenant. That was on the Day of Atonement. The day in which God's people were to mourn over their sin, they were to fast the whole day, a 24-hour fast. But like mask mandates required by many churches in our own culture, a fasting face communicated one's superior righteousness. In reality, it was self-righteousness. We know from Jesus' own words that the Pharisees didn't just fast once a year, they fasted twice a week, every Monday and every Thursday. Why? Because they were the super-religious ones. It was a way to communicate how close they were to God, except for the fact they were further from God than tax collectors and sinners. The Mishnah lists three other fasts, including fasts lamenting national tragedy, natural calamities like drought or famine. There are other fasts that we read about in the Old Testament, but all of them are self-imposed voluntary fasts. In fact, in at least one place that I found where the Israelites were fasting in the book of Zechariah, God says to them, okay, in this month you fast, in that month you fast, and fast in the fifth month you fast, in the seventh month you fast. You know what? Instead of fasting, make it a time of joy and celebration and gladness. God actually commands them to stop their fasting because they were doing it for the wrong reasons. In Jesus' day, it became a test of one's spirituality. How much do you fast? And what do you look like when you fast? Jesus would explain how not to look. He said this, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This isn't about the external. This is about the internal relationship with God. True grief over one's sin, true grief in life produces natural, sincere fasting. But the Pharisees purposely disfigured their faces, sometimes placing ash on their faces to look pale so that they would look more spiritual. This question, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast, is a way of telling Jesus, Jesus, you cannot be taken seriously. 
But you don't even follow one of the three pillars of Judaism. You're in third place in the spiritual league standings behind John's disciples and the Pharisees. See, their tradition magnified the law above Scripture. So much so that where God's Word required one fast a year, they were requiring two fasts a week. There are many places in Scripture, Isaiah 58, Zechariah 7, which chides God's people for their false fasting. I'll just read one verse to you, Zechariah 7, 5. Say to the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and in the seventh month, for in these seven years, when you did that, God asked this question, was it for me that you fasted? Answer being, of course it wasn't. So stop your fasting. Stop your fasting. It's worth noting that these scribes and Pharisees were indeed blind. Jesus would later say they were the blind leading the blind. Because you notice in verse 18, they don't even mention Scripture. The question is rooted in tradition. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The question is not what does Scripture say. The question is, you're not doing what the tradition says. This is, for us in our day, to be taken to heart. I preached from Colossians 2 last week. What did we read there? Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. We could say refinery, as to borrow Jesus' language, in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, severity to the body, that would include fasting, but they are of no value, Paul says, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They have no spiritual power when done in the flesh, when done as a means to earn salvation. We're starting out a little bit slow this morning. We'll gain some speed, but let me just say this. Here's the lesson to draw regarding fasting. Fasting is a biblical practice that is rooted in voluntary moments of self-imposement. Jesus fasted for 40 days, but He never commanded His disciples to fast for 40 days. And throughout the Bible, many of God's people chose times to fast. But I think that if you're doing it biblically, you will be doing it privately. It doesn't mean there won't be seasons where the church can call upon God's people to fast, Times of national fasting throughout history have taken place. Church leaders may call on God's people to fast. We read in the New Testament that when they appointed elders, they fasted and prayed. When they set apart Paul and Barnabas and laid hands on them, they fasted and prayed. They wanted to make sure they got this thing right. When you make an important decision in your life, maybe it's a good idea to fast and pray. When someone dies in your family, it will be a natural thing for you to grieve that loss. You won't be able to eat and you will fast. When you have intense moments of anxiety and pressures in this life, you will be compelled to fast because you will be drawn to the Lord in such an extreme way that you don't want anything to eat. You just want to commune with the Lord and hear from His Word. And that is totally appropriate, but keep it to yourself. That's what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 6. And secondly, fasting is just one example of how works righteousness nullifies God's grace. 
you begin emphasizing the external over the internal, and you can fall into the trap of nullifying God's grace, working for your salvation. So the questioners want to make fasting the issue, but notice how Jesus answers. He answers by revealing to them they have deeper spiritual issues. The way he answers reveals not so much a theology of fasting, but the proper way to avoid work salvation. Because that's the real issue, isn't it? So we move from the question in verse 18 to the illustrations in verses 19 through 22. The inquisition, verse 18, to the illustrations. And Jesus gives three illustrations. He gives a wedding illustration, a wardrobe illustration, and a wine illustration. The longest one is the wedding illustration. But let me just say this, Jesus could have, he could have corrected the questioner's faulty understanding of fasting by appealing to clear Old Testament passages. Instead, he opts to give three illustrations to drive his point home. And as he does this, he not only exposes the legalism of the Pharisees, but he actually defends the right of the disciples not to fast. He sets right the God-intended practice of fasting. And don't lose sight of this fact, He's also escalating the conflict. He could have given one passage and been done with it and gone home. He could have given a number of passages, been done with it, and gone home. Instead, he gives not one, not two, but three illustrations that will leave them dumbfounded and humiliated to expose their legalism. In rapid staccato fashion, each illustration reinforces the next. And what is the point of all three? Here it is. You cannot mix works righteousness with the true gospel of grace. Legalism is not the answer to true spirituality, but the gift of Jesus Himself. Jesus would say, Come to Me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy, and My burden is light. They missed that. So Jesus gives a wedding illustration to help them see the error of their ways. He poses a question to them. You see that? They ask a question. Jesus poses one to them. In the wedding illustration, verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Notice he asks the question, and he doesn't wait for the response. He answers it. The answer is obvious. The wedding guests don't fast with the bridegroom. As long as the bridegroom is with them, they can't. Now, Jesus is not quoting specific Scripture, but He is drawing heavily upon Old Testament theology, and He is describing Yahweh's relationship with Israel, which in more verses that I could enumerate this morning, describe Yahweh as a husband to Israel. So Jesus is claiming deity here. That's important to see, number one. But even beyond that, not only is Jesus claiming oneness with Jehovah, deity, Jesus is saying what he would say later and the rest of the New Testament would say, and that is Yahweh's relationship with Israel, Christ's relationship with the church, is a bond of marital unity between the bridegroom and the bride. The bridegroom is Jesus Christ. Now the the ESV translates this wedding guests, but the NASB, I think, gets it better 
the attendance of the bridegroom because really the attendance of the bridegroom are the friends of the bridegroom. They are, in our common vernacular, the best men of the wedding. They're the ones that organize and execute the wedding plans. And for them to fast instead of feast was unthinkable. You know that Jewish weddings were the greatest celebration. The friends of the bridegroom had one responsibility, and that was to see to it that everyone had a good time. This was not a time for mourning. This was not a time for fasting. It was a time for festivities. In fact, Jewish weddings lasted for a week. The bride and the groom wouldn't even go on a honeymoon. Instead, they would stay at their house and have an open house with tons of guests. The bride and groom treated like a king and a queen, sometimes even wearing crowns. It was a time of great festivity. In fact, the rabbis and all of their laws actually made an exception about fasting. The only time it is not permissible to fast is at a wedding. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing by using this illustration. He's showing their hypocrisy. I am the bridegroom. I have come to wash my bride, the church, with my blood, to wash her sins away. You think that the disciples, the friends of the bridegroom, are going to fast while I'm here? It's unthinkable. He's claiming deity. He's claiming messiahship. This would have been humiliating for the Pharisees who should have known their traditions better. They should have known the law of God better. Isaiah 5.1 refers to God's people as His beloved. Isaiah 54 and Isaiah 62 refer to God's people as my delight, as in her. Jeremiah 2, the, the people of God are referred to as the bride of Christ. You have that illustration in Ezekiel 16 which speaks about God's people as a faithless, really, prostitute who becomes a bride that God cleans up and washes and forgives. You have that verse in Hosea 2.19, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfastness and mercy. All sorts of... Of verses, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's Paul's words as he writes to the Corinthians. All of this imagery in the Old Testament and the New Testament clearly describes Jesus as the bridegroom and his people as the bride. The Pharisees were too blind to see it, but Jesus was claiming deity and he was picturing himself as the Messiah. He is the one, to borrow the language of Ephesians 5, who would wash the church. He would wash the church with His own blood. Jesus would give other parables about weddings. In Matthew 25, for example, you have the parable of the ten virgins, which speaks about Christ as the bridegroom, the ten virgins waiting on the bridegroom to come. You also have the parable and. Matthew 22 of the wedding feast, where Jesus spoke to them a parable saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. They didn't come. He sent other servants telling them, those that weren't invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's a time of celebration. They paid no attention and went off. 
one to his farm, another to his business, and while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, killed them. The king was angry, sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, invite the wedding feast as many as you find. Those servants went out into the roads, gathered all they found, both the good and the bad. The wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, cast him to the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus came and called many, but few were chosen. Some did not have the proper garment to wear. Don't forget that, because that will come up in a few moments. There is a proper wedding garment, and you are to wear that garment, and you are to celebrate Jesus and His salvation that He came to secure for His people. Throughout Scripture, entrance into God's kingdom is described as entrance into a festival or a wedding feast. And John's disciples, who were part of this inquisition, should have known better. Turn with me to to John chapter 3. You're familiar with this verse, but in John chapter 3, you remember what John said. Verse 28, he said, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before Him. And then John uses this illustration. Does this sound familiar? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John, who fasted more than anyone in his day, refused to fast when Jesus came. His disciples should have known better. Jesus is using the same illustration John used. The imagery of a wedding, therefore, more than suggests a new beginning, right? Just as any wedding does, a new beginning. The beginning age of joy. The dawning of an age of joy. This is not a time for fasting. That's what Jesus is saying by raising this question in verse 19. Let me read a verse to you from the prophet Isaiah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, and my soul shall exult in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. We have come to a wedding as the people of God. As the bride of Christ, we've been dressed in robes of righteousness. This is not a time to fast. It's a time of celebration. Why? Let me read from Isaiah again. Isaiah 62. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. A prophecy ultimately about the coming of Christ. So Jesus asked this question in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And then He answers that as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now notice He's not 
avoiding the topic of fasting. He, he's addressing that. His central issue here is you can't work your way into the kingdom. Christ has come to die on the cross to wash you from your sins. You become His bride when He takes you into His arms. He carries you away. He rescues you. He brings you to Himself. It's not what you do. It's not about your fasting. In fact, it's a time of celebration and joy because you've done nothing. It comes by grace. But he doesn't say fasting is completely wrong because he says the days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So the kingdom of God will come first by humiliation and then by exaltation. That's always the way that it happens. Jesus, the bridegroom, will aparthe, be taken away from the disciples and then they will fast in that day. Aparthe, taken away, very strong word, Literally in the Greek, it has to do with the sudden and violent removal. Jesus here is predicting His crucifixion. And He's saying, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, aparthe, and then there will be fasting. Very similar language to Isaiah 53, and the suffering servant, by oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And as for this generation who... Condemned, considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. By oppression and judgment, Jesus was taken away, suddenly removed, violently removed. He's predicting here his crucifixion that through genuine oppression and judgment, he would be crucified, taken away through a violent death. And here is the point when that day comes, there will be a brief period of mourning. And there was that, wasn't there? Before Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples mourned and grieved and doubted. They were discouraged and beleaguered. And even after Jesus ascended and He poured out the Spirit, there were seasons of fasting. As I mentioned to you before, when they were appointing elders, they wanted to get this thing right. They fasted and they prayed. But all such mourning, here's the point, Although fasting is appropriate at times, it is to be short-lived. Turn with me to John chapter 16 quickly. John chapter 16. Jesus was clear about this. Their sorrow would be turned into joy. John 16, verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. I'm going to be taken away, aparthe. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. In other words, you will fast, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And he uses another analogy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That's the age of the kingdom. That's the kingdom of Christ It is like a woman giving birth. It is a new day. It is a time for joy. It's like a wedding celebration. Good times and good times are to come. Paul was even clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection was of 
Christ of first importance, the resurrection of Christ. Paul says that apart from it, our faith is a futile. We're still in our sins. But because Christ has been raised and because He is reigning, because His kingdom is here, and this is the point this morning, God's people are not to be marked by pessimism. They're to be marked by optimism. And maybe I should say that more joyfully. God's people are not to be marked by pessimism. They're to be marked by optimism. Joy. Not by fasting, but by feasting. Not sadness, but gladness. Emmanuel, God is with us. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. The Spirit of God indwells His people. That is the Spirit of Christ. The coming of Jesus is the beginning of an age of joy. The night of His birth, the angel of the Lord brought the shepherds good tidings of great joy. Immediately after Christ's ascension, the early church didn't fast, but it says in Luke 24, after worshiping Him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. They were hopeful. Now, that does not necessarily mean necessarily that you will be a post-millennialist. Necessarily. But you might be optimistic. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Did you catch the secret of joy according to Jesus is obeying the commandments of God? Jesus is not teaching antinomianism. What Jesus is against is not obedience. Jesus is against trusting in your obedience to enter the kingdom of God, whether it's fasting or any other work. Our reconciliation to Christ changes us from enemies to friends. Paul is clear about that in Romans 5. We become His bride. And the fuel of our obedience is the Holy Spirit which creates a certain joy in our heart to borrow the language of Jesus that causes us to want to obey His commandments. If we love Him, we will obey Him and our joy will be full. It will be full. Joy comes through obedience. Joy comes through obedience even in the midst of persecution and suffering. Peter put it this way. 1 Peter 4, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Even in the midst of suffering, Christians are to have some level of joy, gladness, optimism. Such trials were so familiar to Mark's audience. They were in the Roman Empire. They were in the Roman Empire. Can you imagine the joy they must have felt when Mark's record was read to these Christians? about a wedding feast that describes the kingdom of God as one of joy over Nero's tyranny, it would produce hope in their hearts. Because the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom that came with great authority, healing all sorts of sick people, raising people from the dead, defeating demons, cleansing lepers, calling tax collectors, providing salvation, 
the power of God on full display. The Pharisees and their legalistic groups, they were marked by bondage and burdens, not reconciliation and rescue. They were consumed with a system, not salvation. They were proud, not humble. They were a king to themselves. They didn't joyfully submit to Christ for His rulership over them. And Jesus is exposing their rejection of Him as king. They are being left outside of the wedding feast because they're trying to get in on their own merits. They want to fast instead of feast and rejoice in the salvation God provides. Well, Jesus moves to reinforce this wedding illustration. The next two illustrations are very brief. Notice verse 21, a wardrobe illustration. No doubt his questioners are silent at this point, but Jesus just keeps escalating the conflict. Verse 21, by the way, let me give you another illustration. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Jesus is saying, for you to try to repair an old tunic will destroy the garment. It will result in a rent garment as the new pulls away from the old, a worse tear is made. Because when a new patch was put on an old garment and it was washed, that new piece of fabric would shrink and the cloth around the border would rip on the already threadbare old garment. So that what was meant to solve a problem created a worse problem. And the point is incongruity. Luke would say in his account, by the way, that new patch, words of Jesus, that new patch doesn't fit either because it's the wrong color. It's incongruous. The new fabric that Christ dresses His people with cannot be sewn together with the tattered garments of legalism and religion without tearing it apart. That's the point. Reminds me of the parable in Matthew 22. The guest was thrown out of the wedding because he had the wrong garment. A tattered garment. Jesus is saying, you cannot sew the new with the old. Perhaps even thinking of Isaiah 64, 6, that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Don't try to attach your works to the gospel of God. It will damn you and condemn you. It won't save you. Throw out the old garment of legalism. It will not save you. Sinners need clothed with the new garment of Christ's righteousness. Paul speaks about that in Romans chapter 5. And I can't help but think that's What Jesus is thinking about is this doctrine of justification that we need dressed with the robes of righteousness, to borrow the language of Isaiah. Jesus constantly quoted Isaiah. Jesus knew that the only way a sinner was saved is if he was declared righteous. It was an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. But that that justification always came together with sanctification so that it would never produce a life of antinomianism or disobedience. Paul was clear about that in Colossians 3, that you take off the clothes of the old man and you put on the clothes of the new man. Because we've died with Christ, we've been raised with Him, united to Him by faith, the Holy Spirit cleans up our lives, but the cleanup is not rooted in legalism or moralism. The cleanup is performed by Christ. Through Him we are declared righteous, and by the power of the Holy Spirit we are conformed to Christ's image. So that a true conversion will always have with it a change of wardrobe. That's Jesus' point. 
The wardrobe change is not done in the flesh, but by the regenerating work of the Spirit and the work of sanctification. Jesus is not preaching a faith in Him that doesn't result in a transformed life. Far be it. He's saying you cannot save yourself. The Spirit must save you and you cannot sanctify yourself. The Spirit does that. It's all the Spirit. It's all internal. It's all of God. It's not external. It's not of the flesh. It's not done in the works of human hands. Stop trying to sow good works to the Gospel. It doesn't work. And I could stop here. Jesus could have stopped where he did. But like any great teacher does, he presses the point home more. You want a conflict, I'll give you a conflict. You want a question? How I train my disciples, Jesus says? I'll show you the error of your ways and violating Scripture, the error of your ways and being a hypocrite and violating your own traditions, and I will press it home in such an extreme way that you will leave with your tail between your legs. That's exactly what he does. Wedding illustration, wardrobe illustration, now the wine illustration. He's going in for the kill. Verse 22. And... While I'm still speaking, let me mention one more thing. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Goats typically were skinned and uh, really the whole goat was left intact for the most part. The, the legs were cut and then sealed and the neck served as a, as a spout to pour wine in. That's what they kept their wine in. But over time, the leather would obviously become brittle. And you would never pour new wine into old wineskins because once the new wine started to ferment and the gas was released, it would cause expansion and that brittled wineskin would burst and you would lose the wineskin and the wine. Neither one would be preserved. It's part of the language of Matthew from his account. Jesus is saying... Nobody is dumb enough to do that. It's like sewing a new patch on an old garment, pouring new wine into old wineskins. Both are destroyed. Why would you do that? The point of both of these last two illustrations in particular is simply to show the inability of religion by good works to be salvaged. Stop trying to salvage that which is old. Religion by good works is old. It's old. Every cult every religion in the world. Religion by good works is like second-hand clothes that you try to repair. Better to get new clothes. Legalism is destructive. It squanders and wastes the grace of God, wholly incompatible with the gospel. Here's the point. Man-made traditions are no match for the good news of salvation through Christ. You can't mix a little good works with the Spirit. Spirit never works that way. The Spirit is poured not into the old man, right? The Spirit creates a new man and then fills that new man with the fresh wine of God's grace and power. Legalism is like old, brittle wineskins. They cannot contain the true message of salvation. The gospel will be lost. Grace will be squandered. 
But the new life that Christ brings expands within true believers so that the power of the Holy Spirit produces joy like fresh wine. So let me put it to you in simple terms. The issue is not sewing a new patch on an old garment or filling old wineskins with new wine. The issue is this. You can't simply make Jesus an addendum to your life. You cannot pencil Him into your busy schedule of religious duties. You must forsake everything about yourself, including your righteousness, which is like filthy rags, right? You must enter the kingdom of the wedding festivities with new clothes given to you by Christ. And there you'll be cleansed and filled with the Holy Spirit. Because only the gospel produces true salvation. Jesus must invite you to the wedding feast. Jesus must dress you for the wedding feast. And if this happens, He'll provide the wine for you. You'll have eternal joy. But there's one more thing I want to point out to you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. It's always helpful to see how the other gospel writers describe things. And Luke adds a little verse at the end of his account that we cannot leave alone. Luke 5, pick up in verse 37, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled. The skins will be destroyed. Verse 38, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. But then Luke adds this, the words of Jesus. Jesus had one more point, And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good enough. That's condemning. Scribes and Pharisees, and apparently this particular group of John's disciples, were spiritual drunkards. They were drunk on their legalism so much so that they were desensitized to tasting good wine when they tasted it. They didn't want new wine. They didn't care for new wine. They were happy in what they had. They settled for second best. Spiritual drunkards, drinking old wine, settling for second best, and as a result, they would not taste the goodness of Christ and His eternal kingdom. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're celebrating an institution that Jesus established on the foundation of the Passover. A lot of blood. The wine represents the blood, the blood of Christ. Because of the gospel, we have reason to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The shedding of Christ's blood forgives sinners, restores sinners, heals sinners, cleanses sinners. It's the greatest story ever told. Don't settle for the second-hand gospel of religious thrift stores with old garments, old wine, brittle wineskins. Look to Christ. Seek forgiveness in Him. Respond to His invitation to save you. Today you can become His friend. He'll give you a new wardrobe. He'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. He'll produce fruit in your life. And you will live, if you are a true Christian, the rest of your days, never glorying in yourself, 
but only in His righteousness, given to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Religion kills. Christ saves in Christ alone. Let us pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. So much to talk about. Not enough time to capture everything that our Lord taught. Such depth. The vivid color of His illustrations has a way of cutting to the quick of our hearts, exposing our own sins, our own legalism, humbling us, but then also pointing us to Christ, causing us to only hope in Him. Lord, we thank You for Him. And we thank You that He alone is our hope and our salvation. Lord, we pray that everyone here today would know Christ. And if there is any here who doesn't know Christ, that they would take the time to speak with one of the elders. Take the time to speak with someone they trust that can open up the Word of God with them and explain to them the Gospel. We have many, if not most, here today who are true believers who can point wayward sinners to Christ away from their righteousness. So may no one leave apart from asking for help. Father, we are at Your mercy to save who You will. But we know that Your grace is great enough to save the vilest of sinners. We see ourselves as the chiefs of sinners, full of sin, but cleansed through Christ, made a new man, filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank You for the work You're doing in our hearts and in our lives, and we pray You would seal these truths to us as we part. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.